Let me pray. Father, as we delve into your word, we ask that you would open it to us. Not just human understanding, but spiritual. Touch our hearts. Help us to see your love in a new light. Thank you for displaying this love through your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit who binds us together as your people. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Going to to tell you a story this morning. It's probably going to be familiar to to most of you. And uh, our scripture reading today is from Luke 15. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And uh, you you know it as the parable of the prodigal son. Parable of the lost son. Um, there's, There's really two stories here. There's two stories. One story has to do with, with the son, right? How, how bad he is. He's, he's sinful. He's a bad boy. You may have thought you did some stuff growing up, but this boy's really bad. But the other story is the love of the father and how that's displayed here. So as, as I'm reading through here, I want you to make two lists. And one list are going to be the things that, that the son does, right? The things that are wrong and why they're wrong and how terrible they are. And the other list, as we get to it, will be the love of the Father and how this Father shows his love for his lost son. So in Luke 15, we're going to start with verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to feed his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to a census, he said, how, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And as alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's jump into this, right? You've, you've probably heard this before, you know it, but how did you do? How long was your list? How many things did you come up with for this, this bad boy? And what kind of things did you come up for, for the love of the Father? I want to I wanna back up by saying this parable has a, has a setting behind it. There's a reason Jesus told this story. And by the way, what's a parable? If you had to explain that to somebody, what would you tell them? I, I, yeah, I, I think the best definition is that old Sunday school story or, or saying it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? A parable, it's an earthly story with a heavenly mean, meaning. Jesus takes everyday things like a, like a farmer sowing seed or a woman kneading dough or a fisherman out in their boats. And he takes an earthly story, but there's a, a heavenly truth there, a heavenly meaning behind it. And the parables are easier to understand if we understand why Jesus told them in the first place. And so this parable started back at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 and 2. It says, one day, tax collectors and sinners, they're, they're gathered around Jesus. He's, he's talking to them, right? He's preaching to them. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law notice this, and they begin saying, this man, he welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus tells three stories that, that we call parables to respond to this. Now, again, parables are just stories, but they're a, they're a comparison between something Jesus wants to teach and some real situation in life. In a way, Jesus is answering the question, why do you hang around these bad people? Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because usually you only eat with your, with your friends, people like you. Now, most of you have probably spent some time growing up in the church. And we've all been trained, when we, when we hear things like Pharisees, and tax, uh, Pharisees, teachers of the law, Sadducees, scribes, the elders, we hiss and boo, because they're the bad guys, right? They're the ones that gave Jesus a hard time, like they're doing here. And they're the ones that, that put him on the cross. But in Jesus' day, they were the good guys. And I like what Mark Twain said about this. You know who Mark Twain is, right? Born Samuel Clemens, Mississippi River. But he was a very astute individual. He was a very talented writer and speaker. He toured Europe, and high society and royalty came to listen to him. He made this comment. He said, Having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. A lot of truth to that. Yeah. So Jesus answers this question, why are you with these bad people, by telling three stories. And, and the first is the parable of the lost sheep. And he talks about a shepherd who loses a sheep, and um, one of his sheep, and he goes out and he searches and searches until he finds it. And then he, he rejoices. And then he tells a story about a woman who, who loses a, a coin. It's, it's not just, you know, it's not a penny or a nickel. But um, it's very special. And what does she do? She searches and searches. She looks and looks, turns everything over until she finds the lost coin. And then she rejoices when she finds it. Jesus says, God is like this woman. 
And the third story is the prodigal son. So in verse 11, Jesus continued, right? We see a father with two sons. The younger says, Father, give me my share of the estate. When we hear the term younger one, we don't, we don't think much of it. But in Judaism, they told stories with morals, you know, with, with a lesson at the end. At the end. You, you've heard of Aesop's fables, right? Aesop, the, the mouse and the lion, the fox and the grapes, the ant and the grasshopper. These are earthly stories. Aesop's fables are earthly stories with an earthly meaning. Well, in Judaism, these stories often involved families. And the, 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 the different family members had different characteristics in all these stories. Now, do we have any youngest sons here today? Youngest sons. Okay, we got a few. Thank you for being honest. But I'm sorry. Because in these stories, the youngest son was known for being rebellious and not carrying on the ways of the family. So when Jesus begins a story and mentions a younger one, any, anyone there, any Jew listening would say, I know what this lad's going to be like. He's going to do something stupid. And in looking back at the stories that have been told like this, no son ever asked for the inheritance early. And the son's not just asking for it, he's demanding it. They recognize, we would recognize that he's saying, you know, I want what's mine. I want it now. And pops, pops and mom, I don't, I don't care about you. And I've, I've heard today, right? I've heard today about parents sometimes giving, giving their kids a, a larger portion or a portion of the inheritance early, maybe to you know, make a down payment on a home or something big like that. But never heard of anything like this. There was a, a Christian writer. He lived in the Middle East. He traveled around. And, and he would ask people these four questions. And the answers were always the same. He would say, has anyone ever made a, a request like this in your village? And the answer was, was never. No, no child has ever done this. Could anyone make such a request? Impossible. That no one would ever do this. And if someone did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. And so why? Well, the request means he wants his father to die. And not only did he ask for it, the father gave it to him. So the audience of Jesus is listening, and Jesus is like a fisherman. He's setting the hook, and he's going to pull it later on. It doesn't stop there. Verse 11. Verse 13, we read, The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. My wife and I, in our first five and a half years of marriage, we moved four times. But, but it was easy, right? You, you first get married, you don't, you don't have a lot. Every, every time it got a little harder, we needed a, a little bit bigger moving van or to make an extra trip, moving stuff back and forth. So we're, we're glad we've been in Gaylord for over 20 years. We've liked it there. That's a record. But whenever we moved, we never moved the house or the apartment we were living in, right? We, we didn't take the property with us. So this boy, the father gives him his share of the estate. What does that mean? He got his inheritance. And what the boy did next, you have to realize, is 
he sold it all. He liquidated his assets. And what this means is, you know, he, he sold the property. He sold, the, you know, the, the buildings, the, the homes, the houses, the barns, the everything. He sold all the livestock, the farmland, the servants. He wanted the cash so he could leave. You can't move a farm or a large estate. Property is scarce. Just just try and go buy a few acres today, right? You know how hard that could be. You know what the prices are. And so this lad, it means everything that his parents had worked for, their whole lives is gone. And everything their parents had worked for, everything that had been handed down from one generation to another, because that, that was your life back then, wasn't it? The family farm, the land, everything. It's now gone. It means his parents just lost a big chunk of, of their re- retirement. People in those days didn't, couldn't count on the government or Medicare or those what IRAs and 401ks and all that stuff, right? They didn't have it. The times in Israel weren't very calm because the Romans were occupying the country. The boy sold it all so he could leave. He, he wanted to take the money and run. But we're not done. Jesus says he traveled to a far country. You sometimes hear of, of Jews moving back to Israel. They're, they're still doing that today. But not too many leave Israel. And what Jesus means is the son has moved to a Gentile country, you know, a foreign country, and um, he squandered the possessions. He, he spent the money. I'm sure he had a lot of friends helping him. He made new friends. And later on, the older son will tell us he was giving his money to prostitutes. And so the audience of Jesus is listening, and they're thinking, why is Jesus telling us about such a, such a bad boy? Are, are you sure he's even Jewish? Because no Jewish son could be so bad. But let's keep going. He quickly spent it all, and then a famine came. He had to get a job to survive. He becomes a servant, a hired hand. He sent into the fields to feed the pigs. Now, the Jews put a curse on anyone, on any Jew, who joined themselves in a business alliance with a Gentile. You don't work for the Gentiles. And, of course, a Gentile is anyone who's, who's not Jewish. And for the Jews, this was, like, this was like being a tax collector because tax collectors worked for the Romans and they were despised by their own people. And for someone from, from a Jewish background, the, the final picture is, is one of total degradation because the boy has to feed pigs. Have you ever seen an Orthodox Jew with a ham sandwich? Eating bacon. They don't, they don't do that because pigs are unclean animals. They're not kosher. And so the people keep thinking, how bad can this boy get? And what Jesus is doing is piling up one image on top of another of sinfulness in this boy's life. This is what sin does to people. Well, in verse 17, he comes to a census. Yes. He's no longer worthy to be counted as a son. He realizes what he's done. He wants to go home, but he, he's not going to be a son anymore. He can only be a hired hand. 
in a Jewish nobleman's estate, there was a, there was a hierarchy, right? Mom, mom and dad were at the top. Then the children in birth order. Then there, were a level, there was a level of servants called bond servants, bond slaves. They were actually part of the family. They had legal status within the family. Then there were the servants who worked for the family every day. They didn't have this, this special status. And then there were the hired hands. These were the day workers. You know, you need more workers. What do you do? You go out and you find people who, who don't have work. And you hire them for the day or the week or for the season. The boy realizes he belongs in this last group. In this story, Jesus wants us to see sinfulness in its true light. His audience is thinking, no way, right? There's no way he's going to get back in the house. He'll be lucky to be this hired hand. But all the time, Jesus is saying, this is what sin does to people. It separates. And this is what the tax collectors and sinners are like. Sure, they left God. They left God and they've done wrong. But you know what? They're trying to come back. But to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, that's too much. Just like the boy in the parable. We didn't finish the story. You probably know how it turns out because there's, there's the two sons. And the older one stayed home. And he carried on the ways of the family. He worked hard. He stayed at it. Yeah. But again, we didn't finish the story. And when the, parter, when the father throws his celebration, the older son's upset. But his brothers welcomed back while he stayed behind and did all the work. And we're left wondering, is he going to join the party? Is he going to accept his brother and go into the party? And this is just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They have to make a choice. Are they going to accept Jesus or not? Jesus wants them to realize God's love is so great, he will accept anyone who comes to him. And that's the second story we see here. Verse 11 again. The first thing Jesus does is tell us a story about a father. It, it may surprise you, but the Jews didn't call God father. They didn't say things like, our father who art in heaven. They might say the Holy One of Israel, but they never called him father. And the reason for this is by the time of Jesus, the Jews had developed the idea that God was, was, was too far off. You know, he's, he's out there, and we're here, and there's, there's a big distance between us. There was no intimacy. And the Apostle Paul would expand on this, and he would say that we are God's children. We're the heirs. And he, he introduces this new word, this Greek word, Abba, A-B-B-A, which is like saying daddy to God. So Jesus is trying to open up to, to their minds the concept of a loving Heavenly Father. And I, I hope you caught that because we're on the second list now. The ways, the ways God, the Father, shows his love. When the son asked for his share of the estate, the father gave it to him. That's probably the last thing you'd expect because the father, you know, would, would know his son and what he was going to do. Jesus is showing us something here of the love of God. He's telling us since God loves us, he, he gives us freedom. God's love is, is not coercive. 
you can't you can't force someone to love you. He lets people make choices, even if they're they're bad choices. You can't force someone to love you. My wife and I have, have four children, thirty-one to, to nineteen, two in between. When kids are little, as parents, we make all their choices. Then as they get older, we, we let them start to make easy choices, right? Simple choices. You try and help them not to make bad decisions. But there's times as, as a parent where you let them make a choice which, which, which may not go so well for them. And then they leave home. And they make choices. And it may not go so well for them. As parents, we, we don't want our kids to get hurt. But we know in, in life, things don't always turn out right. And as parents, we know better. We face that in our family. The son received the freedom he wanted. The father had had to know what was going to happen, but he gave his son freedom. The love of God is seen in many wonderful ways here. Verse 20, it says, While he was still a long way off, while the son was a long way off coming home, his father saw him filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is a beautiful picture. Here's the father who's looking out, wondering if his son would ever return home. He's, he's not chasing after him. But he'll welcome him back when he comes home. Back in school and seminary, I had a teacher who told a, a, a very strange story. He was from a small town in Illinois. And one day when he was little, he was with his mom downtown, and he saw a woman dressed all in black riding a bicycle through town. And he, he asked his mother, who, who is this? What's, right? Mommy, who is this? And she told him the story of the woman known as Midnight Mary. And that's what everyone in town called her, Midnight Mary. She had a son that went off to World War II. And it was 1959. And every day she rode her bike to the train station hoping her son would get off of the train. This is the same image Jesus is painting of God. He waits, he longs for people to come to him. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus keeps piling up images of the Father's love. In verse 20, he uses a tremendous term to to describe the Father's emotion when he sees his son. We're, We're told the Father was filled with compassion. He was filled with compassion. This this is a word, it, it speaks of an inward turning. It's the deepest compassion, the, the, the deepest emotion you feel on the inside when you see someone else. The father's insides were, were turned over when he saw his son in the distance. And the father was so moved that he ran. And that, that doesn't mean much to us, but it did to the audience of Jesus because noblemen were known for, for not running. Right? I'm, I'm getting a little older. I don't run as much either, <laughs> right? We like to avoid that. 
They were known for how slowly and dignified they walked. This father ran. You see, he didn't want anyone to come between him and his son. If you lived in that community, you would have known what had happened. And if you saw the boy first, what would you have said to him? You've hurt your parents. Why don't you just turn around and go back where you came from, right? Just don't, don't make it worse. Just turn around and go back where you came from. But the father didn't want anyone to come between him and his son. And what did the father do when he got to him? Well, the, the son gave his speech, right? Father, I've sinned against heaven, against heaven, against God, and against you. I'm no longer worthy. The father didn't care. He didn't care about that. He's a loving father. God is loving. Nothing can come between you and God. I love what Paul says in Romans, Romans 8. Neither, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in verse 24, the words of the Father have have taken a a whole new meaning for me. He says, The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Back in April 2006, sitting there in the church office, Gaylord E. Free Church, I was the first one there, of course, getting a jump on my day. And one of the secretaries walked in, and I gave my best morning smile and said, Good morning, how are you? And she looked very sad, and she said, You haven't heard. And she told me the story of how Whitney Sirak had, had died. She was the, the daughter of our youth pastor. Maybe you remember this. She was a student at Taylor University. There's an accident with a van involving some Taylor students, and five of them were killed. And she was one of them. But you may know the story that they made a mistake identifying the bodies. And so we went through a period of mourning. We had the funeral service, memorial service. We had the burial. But for six weeks, the real Whitney Sirak was in a Grand Rapids hospital in a coma. Yeah. And that family thought their daughter was safe. And then when she came out of her coma and was able to to communicate that you're not my family, (laughs) and they realized the mistake that was made. I'll never forget the day when we, when we heard the news that she was alive. But all that joy was tempered by the sense that this, this other family had lost their daughter that they thought had survived. The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Some of the final words of the father, he says, quick, quick, right? God's love, God's forgiveness, 
does, does not have a probationary period. When, when you turn to God, he turns to you. Your father calls for the robe and the ring to be given to him. He, he's not just saying, let's get him cleaned up. But the robe and the ring were symbols of, of the father's position on the estate. The father's saying, I want my son to wear these so everyone knows that I, I have personally welcomed him back. And then he says, let's party. Well, that's, that's putting it in my own words. You may have noticed in the previous two parables, the shepherd and the woman, they, they celebrate with their friends over finding what was lost. And it says, the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Heaven is a celebration. Who came up with this idea that we sit around on clouds playing harps? Heaven is a celebration. The parables of Jesus so often involve a, a, a party, a banquet, a celebration. God rejoices over repentance. He has feelings. When a person turns to him, God accepts him. And one little thing, who's invited? The father invites everyone. He says, let's get that fattened calf. Let's barbecue it. My words again. Let's barbecue it. In the Middle East, food's going to spoil, so you need to feed a lot of people. And the whole village would be invited. So everyone would know this son is now home where he belongs. The father wants everyone to share in his joy. God's love for us is a prodigal love. And we, we know this, right? This is called the parable of the prodigal son. But, you know, those, those titles aren't inspired scripture. And I kind of think someone got it wrong here. Because what does the word prodigal mean? It means abundant, excessive, extravagant. And I think in reality, this, this isn't about a son. The other parables aren't just about a lost sheep and lost coin. Who are these parables really about? Well, what's the setting? Why did Jesus tell the parable? He's, in a way, he's answering the question, why do you, Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? And his answer is, I understand God, and he loves the lost. So these parables, yeah, the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, that's important. But, but what about the shepherd and the woman and the father? That's who it's really about. Prodigal means excessive, extravagant. And these, these stories, they're not about us, the lost. They're about God. So I'd like to change the title here. It shouldn't be the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the prodigal father. Because more amazing than the lostness or the sinfulness of the son is the love of the father who welcomes and accepts this son back. Jesus wants us to understand our Heavenly Father loves us. He loves us in the same way. I love the way a, a Christian writer puts this. He says, if, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If God had a purse or a wallet, your picture would be in it. God can live anywhere in the universe, but he chooses to live in your heart. As you go through life... Think about the God who loves you. When you face a crisis, know that God loves you. And nothing can separate you from his love. 
There's no need in life like the need to be loved. To be loved by another can bring fulfillment, but to be loved by God, to know that love brings ultimate fulfillment. It can give meaning to our lives. Our lives have meaning as we experience God's love and purpose. (sighs) Too many people in this world are like the sun. They're wandering through life. They're, They're lost. And they don't know the love that's awaiting them. And it's the responsibility of God's people to share this love. We need to share this good news because if we don't, if we keep it to ourselves, the world's lost. And so Jesus wants us to learn that God loves us. He loves us abundantly, prodigally, excessively. There was, there was once a boy in England who came from a good home. And he, uh, he made some bad choices. His life went in the wrong direction. He was put in jail. And it was coming close to his time for release, and he, he realized his mistakes. So he wrote a letter home. He said, I, I realize I've been sinful, the mistakes I've made, and I'm sorry. If you will accept me back into the home, please put something white on, on the hedgerow. That way when I come by on the train, I'll know whether to, to get off or to keep going. So finally the day came for his release. He couldn't get a, get a response in time. And he got on the train and he was so nervous and he was fidgeting with the papers and the magazines and the train was coming around the bend and he saw the sign for his hometown. And as he looked out the window, he saw everything in the house that was white was draped out and was hanging on the hedgerows. That's what God is doing in this parable. He's showing us his love, his love in an unmistakable way. How can we do anything else but respond to that love? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the love poured out through your son, Jesus Christ. We think of his death, the ultimate example of that love. But through his life, he taught it, he lived it. And Lord, in our lives, we, we know we're not perfect as your people. And we run across every day, every week, people who, who are hurting, who are lost, and I just ask that we, we as a congregation, your church, can make a difference and share that love. It's, it's the good news. It's the best news. And we can't keep it to ourselves. And so as we continue to worship, as we move forward, be with us, we pray, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the Gospels tell us that on the first day of the week, the day on which our Lord was...